0: Good evening, everyone, or good morning or good night, depending on your time zone. Uh, Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods and its amazing history. Most weeks, like this one, uh, the show focuses on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but its vibe, its texture, and its energy. What makes the neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Occasionally, we'll host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood. For example, might be one of our fine urban parks, a great museum, the history of the transit system, the city in an age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. I keep threatening to bring an addition of punk on the air. Uh, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Each episode is always informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, we have some fun. And each show is available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. Well, today we're going to be doing a very special neighborhood. It's a small neighborhood. Most people think it's on the Upper East Side, but it's a very uh, specific part of it. It's called Carnegie Hill. It goes from either 79th or 86th Street, depending on your frame of reference, up to 98th Street and across to 3rd Avenue. My first guest is a returning guest to Rediscovering New York, David Griffin. Uh, David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David has a special series that he hosts called Room at the Top, which I've been lucky enough to attend. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, and it's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings and frequently of their penthouses and upper reaches. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Great to be here again, Jeff. Well, some of our listeners know your background, but uh, some ones, especially new ones, do not. Um, Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you develop an interest in neighborhoods and specifically in architectural history?
1: Well, I was interested in architecture ever since I was a child. Uh, And as I grew older, uh, that became very much a kind of focus on American architecture, uh, particularly from the 1850s through the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. So, so sort of a development of architecture that coincides with the development of international modernism, which I feel is a very uh, kind of interesting subject. Um, and then as my career developed, I'd been working in the art world for uh, 17 years, actually, as a senior associate with Thomas at Associates, which was a very highly respected arts consulting firm. I was always interested in writing about architecture. And as uh, the freelance opportunities sort of fell away after 2008, I began to develop the idea that marketing services based on knowledge of architecture could be very helpful to the real estate community at large. So I've been working, as you say, with brokers, with developers, with architects and design firms to kind of help these people tell their stories, tap into their portfolios, and really kind of make their buildings shine. There is so much Uh, kind of interest and history, um, dynamism, elegance, and intrigue uh, wrapped up in the skyline and the sidewalks of New York that I feel that uh, commercializing on it is something that should be part and parcel of almost every business's plan in the city. I mean, you're in one of the greatest destinations in the world why not help tell the story of that destination and what it means to you?
0: And that's done through Landmark Branding. Yes. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And that's at www.landmarkbranding.com.
1: Exactly. And uh, I also have a blog there called Every Building on Fifth. Uh, just uh, re- restarted it. Uh, it's a, a capsule history of every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square up to on 43rd Street. We're currently at 132nd. So. Just uh, in the in the final stretch, as well. ah, mm-hmm.
0: well, excellent. It's only two blocks from where I live. Um, <clears throat> and full disclosure, David and I have worked on a number of projects together. And in my series, which bears the same name, "Rediscovering New York," as a tour series, David gave an amazing lecture on the history of the New York arch- of the New York Penthouse, uh, and I'm still getting compliments from people I know about about that. Excellent. Um, when did people start living in what would become Carnegie Hill, David?
1: Well, Carnegie Hill was settled along with the rest of Manhattan during the early colonial period. So uh, in terms of European settlement, uh, people were up within the the reaches of what we now see as Carnegie Hill as early as the late 1600s. But we're talking about isolated farmhouses, possibly a tavern here or there. It wasn't really until after 1831 uh, that you begin to see a kind of a shift towards the popularization and populating of Carnegie Hill. Harlem was a village, Yorkville was a village, but Carnegie Hill was still pretty much an open stretch of farmland and countryside up until that point.
0: Oh, so Yorkville also was a village. Yorkville was a village. okay. Uh, And the the railroad opened up in 1831?
1: Uh, 1831, the New York and Harlem Railroad was created. It had a stop at 86th Street uh, along what was then called Fourth Avenue, and that served the Yorkville community, but this also opened up the development of Upper Manhattan, uh, and led to the development of now what we consider Carnegie Hill.
0: Mm. The L train, the Third Avenue L, was built later on in the later eighteen seventies. Yes. Mm-hmm. How did the uh, specifically the the bringing of the L train to the neighborhood change it and change its its residential development in a way that that the Harlem railroad did not.
1: It changed it quite dramatically because with the Harlem Railroad, obviously railroads during that time were were not just noisy and uh, insalubrious in a way. They were actually quite dangerous to live next to. There was soot, there were sparks, there was uh, the, the, the threat of a crash. No one wanted to live very near a railroad, so the original railroad brought development to Carnegie Hill, but it was mostly in the form of uh, squatters' villages, quarries, taverns, breweries, uh, factories. It was very much sort of a zone of ill repute and a great deal of pollution, actually, by 19th century standards. The 3rd Avenue L, which was sort of geared towards middle class commuters, brought an entire new take onto the the idea of living in that area. And as the uh, New York and Harlem Railroad declined, the 3rd Avenue L opened up the, the area to the development of townhouses and brownstones that were geared at first to the middle class and then more and more as uh, money began to move up the island in terms of development, the upper middle class, et cetera, and so forth. So you, you got very, very handsome houses in the beginning, and then as time went on to the 1870s, 1880s, um, extremely elaborate houses, uh, brownstone houses, neo-Grec houses, Italianate, uh, Queen Anne, Victorian houses. Um, almost all of the blocks were filled up to the Fifth Avenue line, uh, by the 1880s, 1890s period.
0: But the the Harlem and uh, New York Railroad wasn't sunk uh, until what, like 1905 or 10, when 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 mm-hmm. the present yeah. Grand Central was built.
1: 19, I believe it was gone by the time Grand Central, the original Grand Central uh, station, was built. So, in
0: order for 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 that uh, upper class development to take place. Um, those things that you described couldn't have been there. I know I'm getting kind of granular, but the the historian in me, uh, uh, those sparks and all that soot, it, when did it start to disappear from, uh, when, from the 4th Avenue?
1: Really when uh, Vanderbilt very reluctantly agreed to sink the train tracks um, south of 96th Street. That's yeah. really when all of a sudden you begin to see a revival of interest in the Park Avenue corridor, which all becomes Park Avenue at that time, really, for all intents and purposes, and uh, you begin to see people being more and more uh, sure about migrating from where the Rockefeller-Vanderbilt band was around the, uh, the the 50s and the 60s all the way up through the, uh, also you had the Central Park, which was maturing. Uh, obviously, the development of the park took Decades in order to kind of complete, but development tended to kind of chase that up to a certain point, and the point was 86th Street just south of Carnegie Hill uh, for quite a while, actually. Mm. So, uh, from
0: what you said, it sounds like most of the row houses on the on on the side streets uh, into the 80s and uh, the 90s were completed largely by the turn of the in, into the 20th century. Yes, yeah, uh,
1: a lot of the. Um, the, the buildings that were erected uh, for that particular market were created from around 1880 through, I'd say, 1900. And the whole district, except for the Fifth Avenue lots, was really built up until that time period.
0: Right. The one exception was Fifth Avenue, wasn't it? That yes. was not built up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Why not? Why? How is this? This is all this prime land that went undeveloped. You think it was across from the park? Someone would have wanted to build on it.
1: Uh. A lot of people did. But the thing is, is that you know this isn't the first time or the last time uh, that uh, developers or private trusts and families have invested in property and then held on to it waiting for the market to optimize. And in this case, south of 86th Street, people were willing to live. Uh, South of 79th Street was all sewn up by the time of the Cook Block Historic District. But it was sort of kind of an open idea as to whether people wanted to really live on on Fifth Avenue, uh, north of 86th Street. And really, the person who kind of changed all that was Andrew Carnegie, when he came in and developed one of the largest freestanding mansions ever to be constructed in New York City, uh, which now houses the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Museum of Design. And um, in 1898, he purchased a lot on Fifth Avenue between 90 and 91st Streets, um, it was vacant at the time as were indeed the majority of 5th Avenue blocks. And why did
0: he choose this part of town to build his mansion on because most of the other most of the uh, more
1: fashionable mansions were were south of 86th Street and certainly south of 79th Street. To be perfectly frank, I feel Carnegie being the person that he was, the writer that he was, the philanthropist that he was, he was making a little bit of a statement. He was saying I don't need to be in the midst of society. I am democratic. He referred to his own house as the roomiest big barn that money could buy. Um, He claimed it had no architectural pretension. (laughs) It was by Cook Willard and it has plenty of architectural pretension. But he was also, I think, positing, uh, potentially positioning himself away from a former business rival, Henry Clay Frick, who, of course, had the Frick Mansion constructed at 70th Street and Fifth Avenue, right in the heart of true high society. It's a very and different who, style. It's, it's very, almost like a, very a, different. Athenian palace, the way it's built. It is an extraordinarily handsome, but very severe building that has the aspect of, as you say, a public building, and it became, of course, the Frick Collection, the Frick Museum of Art. Um, Frick was seen as a very cold and authoritarian character. And Carnegie, I think, wanted to open up his own neighborhood and create his own rules. And so at 90th Street, he had the opportunity to do so. And he really did so. He was much more controlling than he let on, interestingly enough. Well, I wonder if his desire to be a little bit different and also be controlling had anything to do with, the,
0: with his heritage. He was from Scotland. <laughs> and, w- and how old was he when he came to the United States? I'm curious.
1: I'm not sure about uh, that.
0: But he came and made his fortune in the steel industry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh. Um, he didn't exactly just sell his lots off, did he? He 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 mandated that there no. be certain certain
1: requirements for him, like the Cook Block, uh, the the block uh, that stands at Fifth Avenue between seventy uh, eighth and seventy ninth. Carnegie actually bought the lots around his mansion, and he only sold them off to people who he was sure would create works of architecture that he felt would be on a par with his own. So in a way, he was a little bit more controlling than Frick was, ironically enough. Um, But the lots that do surround the Carnegie House contain some of the greatest architecture in New York City of the period, largely in part because of that stipulation.
0: All right, we're going to talk about some of those houses and the development of the neighborhood after 1900 when we come back from a short break. Break. Stay tuned. (laughs) We're back, Rediscovering New York, with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. And our first guest is David Griffin, founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. So this whole notion of Andrew Carnegie, David, having bought um, uh, these plots of land and requiring people to build on them, um, how did he actually enforce that? Did he just take a look at their plans and then say, okay... I like it. I'll go. Uh, let's go ahead and I'll sell you this property. Or did he actually have something written into a covenant or a deed to actually enforce his 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 vision?
1: I don't know if there was a written stipulation to this or if it was more of a gentleman's agreement. I know that he followed the pattern set by uh, the Cook family when they developed their block at seventy eighth through seventy ninth, which was that any one person uh, attempting to purchase a plot of the land that the Cook family owned had to submit architectural plans to approval. So whether that was written into the contract or was just sort of an understood quality, I'm not quite sure, but uh, Carnegie did exercise a great deal of authority in the development of the blocks immediately surrounding his own home and uh, I think for that reason, we had such a high quality of architecture surrounding the Carnegie House. The funny thing is, Carnegie House is, it's actually, it's a red brick house. It's rather cheery. It's in a kind of Georgian Beaux-Arts fantasy style. It's much grander than Carnegie would have let on. But it is, quote unquote, unpretentious for the houses of its time, even though it has this incredible kind of sense of scale to it. Um, the houses that front Carnegie's um, house, particularly in 91st Street, are incredible. Incredibly aristocratic. They are the knee plus ultra of Art's architecture. In a way, Carnegie got a better view of his neighbors than they ever got of him, <laughs> which is kind of ironic. And uh, the same holds true, actually, for the church to the south of uh, Carnegie's house. Um, Mrs. Carnegie offered that site directly south of the house of the Church of the Heavenly Rest, uh, established in 1865, which had probably, probably been located in a small, much older building in Midtown. And she helped them bring them up there uh, on the stipulation that they would choose uh, an architectural firm that she found congenial. And they chose Mayors Murray and Philip, which was a successor firm to that of the architect Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue, um, who designed St. Bartholomew's on Park Avenue, one Ooh. of the greatest yeah. sort of, um, I'd say, Renaissance slash Art Deco buildings in the city. And of course, they delivered this very, very careful, very archaeologically correct Gothic tour de force that really creates this kind of beautiful wall to the the end of the garden. So Mrs. Carnegie got something out of that deal, and that she got to look out on this incredibly beautiful landmark uh, for the rest of the, the tenancy of her, her time in the house. And
0: it's a beautiful church. It is. And you know. actually now partly in the church grounds, there's a very interesting
1: coffee shop called Bluestone. Yes, mm-hmm. an yes, Australian yeah. chain, yes, yes, yes. So the, the perfect flat white for any Aussies out there listening <laughs> can be obtained in one of the most beautiful little Gothic courtyards off of Fifth Avenue.
0: Well, just a note to our listeners, most of uh, what we're going to talk about in this segment is actually going to be about the residential uh, construction and architecture because it is so r- beautiful and there's so much to talk about. Uh, I'm wondering, was, was Mrs. Carnegie Episcopal? Because her husband probably would have been Scottish Presbyterian. I wonder how she, she uh, chose an Episcopal church. To, to.
1: I do not know Mrs. Carnegie's denomination. Uh, she may have simply thought that the community was to her liking or she may have come from an Episcopal background. Herself um, before she married Mr. Carnegie.
0: So when were the fine mansions along that part of Fifth Avenue finally completed? When were there no more empty lots left?
1: Really, it took until I would say around 1910 for that entire section of Fifth Avenue to be built up. Uh, and the fact that the Carnegies were there did make it very much attractive to other people. And that's when you begin to see people moving north of 86th Street and developing their own houses. The houses that survive along that corridor tend to be, I would say, on the whole, actually. Um, This might sound a bit odd, but I'd say that they are architecturally superior to the ones that are found south of 86th Street. 86th Street, you have that great block at 79th, 78th, which of course is the Cook block. But people were building houses that were very kind of retardaire and that they were very conservative. They were just sort of like, well, this is what we're going to do. And I feel that the people who moved north of that area wanted houses that were very distinguished in an archaeological sense. So you get this kind of sense of a uh, selection of houses, many of which do survive, both on Fifth Avenue and on the side streets, that are really kind of tour de forces of both the Beaux Arts, Neoclassicism, the Mediterranean Revival, the Chateau School with the Warburg Mansion, which is of course now the Jewish Museum. Um, Some very beautiful houses from the early 20th century in the kind of high Gatsby mode that involve courtyards, driveways, gardens, and things of that nature. And the townhouses and apartment buildings tend to be much more, sort of aesthetically inclined in a certain way. They're a little bit more creative, a little bit more outray, I think, than the more conservative tenor of architecture south of 86th Street.
0: And it's called Millionaire's Row, that stretch of...
1: All of Fifth yes. Avenue is millionaires row, but yeah, that 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 particular stretch was uh, called that. Yeah, uh,
0: what other notable buildings are still there that people can see along Fifth Avenue, within blocks of of uh, the Carnegie Mansion, now the Cooper Hewitt Museum.
1: Well, the the greatest house to survive on Fifth Avenue, uh, north of eighty sixth Street, I would say, would be the Warburg Mansion, and uh, the Warburgs were a very aristocratic Jewish family uh, who moved over, emigrated, I should say, Mr. Warburg from Germany to New York City in the 19th century. Um, he, his wife, his daughters were, uh, I believe, the, the, um, the subjects of a series of portraits by John Singer Sargent. Um, they commissioned a house from C.P.H. Gilbert, who uh, worked in what was called then, um, ironically by some, the Vanderbilt Gothic style, uh, based on the French Gothic architecture of Francois I? And C.B.H. Uh, Gilbert really created this incredible castellated building on Fifth Avenue that the Warburg family then donated to the Jewish Museum. Um, at some point, a modern addition was put on to the house uh, directly to the north. And then the, um, uh, an architect uh, came in who <laughs> reconstructed and enlarged that edition, but in the style of the original Warburg house and went so far as to going back to France to look at the original chateau that C.P.H. Gilbert had studied and asked the French government for permission for drawings to use in the replication of certain details so that they could extend the mansion uh. Vertically, if you will, uh, to the north on Fifth Avenue. And And now if you you see it these days, you would not guess that there was an addition to the house. It really is. It's absolutely seamless.
0: And when was it built? uh, The
1: extension extension was built actually in the 1990s. Wow.
0: I did not know that. When did apartment houses start to get built on Fifth Avenue in the neighborhood?
1: Um, I mean, pretty much after the 1910 period, you see apartment buildings starting to go up. There were some apartment buildings. The Grantham is an apartment building, for example, I believe on 92nd Street and Madison. That's quite significant. Um, so there were apartment buildings, actually, um, uh, Louis Corn built a building on Madison Avenue that's actually quite beautiful in the French Second Empire style around 1901, 1902. So early 1900s, there are some luxury apartment buildings that come in. Um, the apartment buildings that we kind of associate with the Upper East Side didn't really start appearing until after around 1910, 1920. Uh, and those tended to be... Um, A little bit more modulated designs, I think, than the ones that you find south of 86th Street. Uh, There's not as much post-war or pre-war in the sense of like Art Modern buildings Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. neighborhood. It tends to be all Beaux-Arts. Isn't there
0: some famous New York penthouse history and development in Carnegie Hill?
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, we would be
0: remiss not to to cover that in the program. Exactly,
1: exactly. One of the uh, kind of greatest um, penthouses in the world... Uh, was built for Mrs. E. F. Hutton. And um, she was uh, obviously uh, you know, a person of uh, a great deal of import, if you will. And she had a huge mansion that was constructed on Fifth Avenue. And the developers came to her and said, well, you know, we want to take your mansion and we want to, you know, tear it down and build a luxury apartment building here. And she's sort of like, well, I don't know that I want to do that. I really like my house. Now, actually, she did not like <laughs> her house. Uh, There was a lot of dust that came in through Fifth Avenue in those days. The traffic was increasing. She was a very retiring and exclusive sort of character. And she had been thinking about selling the place anyway. But she said to this particular developer, she said, I will sell you my mansion if you rebuild it for me on the top of your apartment building. And that is exactly what they did. They dismantled the house. They erected the apartment building. And for all intents and purposes, they replicated her mansion up at the top of, uh, I believe, 1155 Fifth Avenue. And they included all of the paneling and stained glass and interior details from the original house. Uh, this this uh, apartment had 53 rooms. It was on three levels, and it was a rental. She rented it <laughs> um, for I, I, not a, a large amount of money either, by by anyone's standards. She wrote that into the contract but wow. people moved there because they knew that Mrs. Hutton was there so to have her living up at the top of the building even you know practically rent free in a, a penthouse that she had kind of created out of her own mind was worth it enough to these developers that is the largest single city apartment in New York City history it is potentially the largest apartment ever created in the world certainly at the penthouse level Um, It is still partially intact and that many of the architectural features have survived, but it has been subdivided into about a half dozen apartments.
0: And it is a cooperative for anyone interested in potentially buying into it, uh, which I can help them with later on. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the history after the Second World War. Of course, the most monumental post-war building on that stretch is none other than the museum. Yes, uh, and uh, was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. How did that wind up where it was, and what was the genesis of of, of bringing that building to to Fifth Avenue? Uh,
1: the the Guggenheims had long lived on Fifth Avenue. Uh, Mr. Guggenheim Solomon Guggenheim, for whom uh, the museum is named, and who was the progenitor of the 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 uh, the project, uh, owned an entire parcel of land on that uh, block, and he took down. Uh, six houses, and a 13-story apartment building in order to build the Guggenheim Museum. Um, The Guggenheim Museum, obviously designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, is well-known for its spiral. Uh, Many people don't recognize that it was actually created as a museum of non-figurative art, specifically uh, based on the artwork of Kandinsky and um, the constructivist expressionists and people associated with uh, the Theosophist movement, Uh, people who thought that the penile gland, for example, was an inner eye that there was a kind of an idea of a spiral upwards into consciousness. And so the spiral of the Guggenheim Museum is not just sort of a deft kind of architectural trick. It becomes Wright's translation of the idea held by Guggenheim and the people that he was studying and following that the spiral itself is a way into inner consciousness. So to see the artworks kind of up on this amazing ramp et cetera and so forth, is kind of an idea that that is a way to unlock the inner way of interpreting them in some sense. And um, it's, it's actually quite an interesting, almost, um, I would say, a theological metaphor, uh, which is why the Guggenheim sometimes has that kind of essence, as you sometimes feel, for example, the Hagia Sophia, of being almost a religious building, uh, much more than a, than a secular museum one. Wow. And for those of
0: you who've not been there, it's definitely worth the visit. You have to get there. Um, well, thank you so much. Our first guest has been David Griffin, founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. David is also the special consultant on Rediscovering New York. Uh, you can visit the site of David's business at www.landmarkbranding.com. We'll be back with our second guest after a short break. Stay tuned. Okay.
2: You're listening to the Talking
3: Alternative Network.
0: Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.
2: Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place.
3: 24 hours a day.
0: We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from the Mark Myman team. Mortgage Strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about neighborhoods and the myriad textures of New York but one thing my show is not is a business show about real estate. But there is a really good one. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. It airs on Tuesday mornings, live at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can also like us on Facebook, uh, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. And also follow me on Instagram at Jeff Goodman NYC. How's that for a novel uh, handle? If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me. You can reach me at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our next guest is Matthew Bauer. Matt joined the Madison Avenue Business Improvement District as its president in 1999. This BID provides marketing, supplemental safety, and sanitation services and streetscape improvements for over 800 businesses located on Madison Avenue on the Upper East Side and into Carnegie Hill. Marketing-related programming of the Madison Avenue BID has been recognized by the Department of Commerce, the International Downtown Association, and the Shop America Alliance. Matt's previously served as the executive director of the Lower East Side BID, the New York City circuit rider of the New York Main Street Alliance, and a planner with the New York City Department of City Planning. I actually had a summer job at the Brooklyn office of the Department of City Planning back in the 80s. have to talk about one or two people I may know that you may know. <laughs> Matt's presently a member of the Retail Committee of NYC and Company and of the Board of Directors of the NYC Bid Association. He previously served as chair of the association. Matt has earned a PhD in planning and public policy from Rutgers and holds a master's degrees in historic preservation and urban planning from Columbia University. What a resume. Matt, welcome to Rediscovering New York.
5: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: You are a native New Yorker. From Coney Island in Brooklyn. Oh, great. Well, full disclosure, Matt and I grew up about a mile from each other. Uh, my mother is from Coney Island. Um, what had you decided to go into? Urban planning, historic preservation, public policy. What, what, what drew you to, to, to
5: this? Um, my senior year of college, I took an intro to an architecture class and fell in love with it. And uh, um, decided to change careers and wanted to be involved in buildings became a tour guide for uh, Boston by foot in uh, in Boston. And uh, one thing led to another. And being from Brooklyn, you care about neighborhoods. And uh, <laughs> loving my neighborhood, it it kind of all came together. So uh, um, it's been a great journey.
0: And Boston Matt attended Brandeis University, which is outside of Boston. So hence the Boston connection. Yeah. Um The Madison Avenue Business Improvement District was not the first bid that you were involved in, was
5: it? No, no. I was uh, involved with the uh, Lower East Side Business Improvement District, which uh, has Orchard Street and Delancey Street, Grand Street, uh, some of the great uh, historic uh, businesses of New York City. And uh, it's it's gone through so many different iterations, but it still is uh, one of the great... uh, Immigrant communities of New York City, and, and so many uh, folks view it as their, their home in New York City.
0: Mm. Well, how is it? What moved you from downtown to uptown? It's like the Jeffersons moving on up to the, <laughs> east, to the east side.
5: Well, you know, I, I, I had a lot of pastrami at Katz's. <laughs> so, but uh, I, I did want to try uh, the black and white cookies at William Greenberg Desserts. <laughs> so, you know, I had to, had to change a little bit of the menu.
0: Uh, talk about William Greenberg desserts. Uh, my mother's second marriage, not my, uh, my mother's first, obviously, but my mother's second marriage, uh, her cake was from Greenberg's. Uh, oh, yeah? In 1978, and I still remember what it tastes like. It was that good.
5: Best black and white cookies anywhere.
0: How would you describe the vibe of Upper Madison Avenue and Carnegie Hill? What does the neighborhood feel like to you?
5: You know, it, it feels like a residential community which doesn't seem like such a novel idea but when in a place where there are so many of the world's great fashion brands and art galleries you would think that this is going to be a touristy neighborhood but it's actually quite at a place where you see the great museums it's actually a place where you when you walk up and down the street the majority of the folks that you'll see live around there and i think that's really what gives um uh, a sense of familiarity uh, it Builds relationships within businesses and as residents. So it really feels like a, like a real vibrant neighborhood. Hmm.
0: And, of course, there are some famous schools in Carnegie Hill. Um, how do you find that the presence of those schools has has affected the vibe and feel of the neighborhood?
5: Sure. Well, uh, in, in the Madison Avenue Business Improvement District, which runs from 57th Street to 86th Street, we have wonderful PS6 and uh, i'll tell you, uh, folks come out in the neighborhood, they stick around the schools uh, there is uh, interplay between the businesses and the parents the businesses with the and the kids um, so they uh, it really it makes a, a full three sixty of a neighborhood there
0: and you've been uh, uh Spearheading and leading uh, the Business Improvement District for twenty years, um, do you think the neighborhood has changed? And since you since you started the BID, um, by, and by the way, did you found the BID? No, no, no. it
5: was it was founded uh, in nineteen ninety six, so a few okay. years before uh, a few years before I started. You know, a lot of the store names may have changed, but ultimately the neighborhood actually hasn't gone through that much of a transformation. You know, that's one thing that you know, a lot of folks are always looking for what's new and vibrant and new and different about, uh, about New York City. And, you know, Madison Avenue is a place that is very solid, that has a, uh, enduring, uh, enduring uh, businesses that have been there for generations. Uh, and at the same time, lots of new designers, but it's still a place that has um, uh, a very strong sense of itself that uh, it doesn't need to try to jump and get to the new hot, uh, uh, the hot ticket. It is a place that is proud of being what it is.
0: Oh, great. And we still have David Griffin in the studio, and David has a question for you.
1: Well, le- less a the question, then. I'd, I'd like to reiterate what you're saying is that uh, when I uh, graduated from college in 1999, uh, friends and I used to gather at a restaurant called Island on Madison Avenue, Uh, in Carnegie Hill, and it's still there. And uh, it is sort of like amazing how I go back to that district now, and so little seems to have changed. It really is kind of about neighborhood standbys. As you say, it's not a tourist zone. It really is a local-oriented zone. Um, I was fortunate enough to live in New York in a place where we had sort of our own little main street, and I feel like Carnegie Hill, 86 to 96, is that little main street on Madison Avenue where there's the local place, the the little bar- the little restaurant, the little bookstore, the corner boutique, the place where the kids go and pick up candy bars and things like that. And there's a kind of an intimacy to it for all that, you know, architecturally it's a very grand neighborhood. There is a kind of sense of just, you know, people who live there. And that's that's a very, very valuable thing. Wherever you find that in New York, I think it's great. And it's definitely there in that, that particular district. Yeah, that, absolutely. Uh, and
5: I, I could tell you about business has been there for generations and... Uh, um they know their customers, and that's a remarkable yes, yeah. that's a <laughs> remarkable thing
1: so and they remember them that's <laughs> even more remarkable <laughs>
0: well being president of the b i d you've known business owners there for for twenty years um has it been their experience that the neighborhoods changed or evolved at all uh
5: well. There's always new folks. In 20 years, people uh, certainly people do uh, come and go in the neighborhood. But at the same time, I think there is a sense that it is um, a, a place that that folks feel like they belong, and uh, that's welcoming, and that um, you come to because you depend upon that local client. You know, one thing that distinguishes. Uh, Madison Avenue is a as a luxury retail district from many others around the world is that when you look up above the first or second floor of the building you see residences folks are living above the stores on Madison Avenue and right around the corner Uh, so that intimacy Between uh, the residential community and the business community is there and many other places where you find these brands around the world that are um, uh, internationally known. They're in places that are in a central business district where the largest number of people that you'll see there are either visitors or you know, folks is coming in back and forth to work. This is a residential community primarily, and that, and that connection is so important. That's why you know, we, do involved, we are involved in charitable events that support local charities in our community um, and because there really is that sense of, of connectedness.
0: Mm. Well, this is a question I don't usually ask people, but uh, you being from a business improvement district and actually leading one, uh, is there any special advice that you have for people who are thinking about opening up a business in the neighborhood? Because one of the things that we've heard from business owners, too, is that the rent has gone up tremendously. And so it's uh, as, as much of a challenge as it is for people in retail. And I have an immense amount of respect for people who run a retail business. Sure. Um, uh, is there any particular advice that you would have if someone is thinking
5: about bringing their dream to a storefront or a retail establishment? Right. And, and uh, you know, rents have stabilized in the last in the last year. Uh, Or so on Madison Avenue uh, as they have in in many other locations around around the city Uh, But one thing that I would say primarily if you're opening up a business in in, on Madison Avenue is be Be especially uh, mindful of your client and that you know who your client is and figure out your way of interacting you can't depend on uh thousands and thousands of people walking by you have to depend upon loyal people that are here in our neighborhood so get to know them be involved with them uh, be friendly that's really the key to building long-term relationships and then have that special product that you can't find anyplace else
0: so even though you have, you know, so much in the way of tourist attractions, specifically the Museum Mile, uh, sure. mile and the Met and the Guggenheim and, and moving up up the Museum Mile, uh, would you say that that most of the businesses, most of the people who patronize Madison Avenue businesses there are actually who uh, live in the area and not, and not people who come through as, as tourists?
5: Well, we have lots of folks that are are visitors to New York City, but also may come to visit New York City on a very frequent basis. So a lot of the uh, folks that uh, are from out of town that visit and shop on Madison Avenue come to New York on a frequent basis and really uh, and continue to support those businesses. Uh, and it's true as well that, that that combination with the local really does uh, make the majority of the, of the client base of, of Madison Avenue.
0: So it's like they're second circle locals Then there, right? Well, there you go. That's <laughs> peripherally right. Peripherally involved in the community because they're there a lot. In right, that. right. I mean, uh-huh.
5: even places like yeah. our, you know, our great hotels that are, um, are like the, the Carlisle, the Mark, the Surrey, the Lowell, and the Plaza Athene. Each one of those hotels uh, uh, depend upon those repeat visitors, people that when they come to New York, I stay at the Carlisle. When I come to New York, I stay at the Mark, the Surrey. These are their places – their homes away from home. And uh, those visitors are really the key component of the visitor market on Madison Avenue. Yeah.
0: I'd like to add on a historical note uh, uh, JFK used to stay at the Carlisle. Indeed. <laughs> he did. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Matt Bauer. Stay tuned.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. <laughs> talkingalternative.com
0: Welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Our guest is our second guest is Matt Bauer of the Madison Avenue Business Improvement District. Uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about the Madison Avenue BID. How it's from 1996. Um, uh, what other kinds of things do you do aside from just encouraging commerce? You mentioned charity work. What kind of charities sure. do you?
5: So every for? year, uh, the Madison Avenue Business Improvement District partners with the Society of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, And for the annual Miracle on Madison event, and over 80 businesses donate 20% of their sales to uh, the Society of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center's pediatric programs. And uh, you know we do work with uh, other charities in the community and throughout the city, from the Animal Medical Center to the American Ballet Theater to Central Park Conservancy. Um, and there's a, actually an event coming up very shortly called the Shop and Stroll that the New York Junior League puts on and that many of our businesses on Madison Avenue support and uh, gives back to local charities as well well
0: where does the creation of the Madison Avenue bid come in the in the um, uh, the timeline of bids when sure. was the first bid
3: created in
5: sure. in the mid 1970s in, in a lot of ways business improvement districts were created uh, to uh, for the private sector, to support uh, services above and beyond what the city was able to provide. And especially during the fiscal crisis in the mid-1970s, um, there was a diminution of sanitation and security services. Uh, a lot of businesses were fleeing New York. Uh, and so business improvement districts were created to provide for the, for the private sector to actually supplement those services provided by the city, provide public safety offices, street cleaners, Due to marketing and promotion. Now the Madison Avenue bid was formed, uh, you know, 20 years later, and I think the focus became a bit more on uh, marketing and promotion and capital improvements. But at the same time, you know, folks expect Madison Avenue to be spotless, and uh, it takes folks to be out on that sidewalk to make that happen. And uh, our gleam team uh, goes gleam out. Team. They're called ah. the gleam team. Uh, they are out. Seven days a week, uh, starting at seven in the morning, uh, sweeping our sidewalks, removing graffiti, taking off stickers, changing the trash uh, liners. Uh, we work actually with the Doe Fund, and uh, they provide our our uh, public our sanitation workers. We also uh, have a, a public safety team that works very closely with the 19th Precinct. Patrol the area, but also act as ambassadors. But we do a number of other uh, promotional events. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, we're doing a big Madison Avenue Gallery event uh, called Madison Avenue Gallery Walk uh, in April. Uh, and from uh, where to where is that uh, and what dates do you that's April 27th it'll be from uh, galleries from 57th to 86th street we have 50 galleries taking part uh, providing talks uh, throughout the day uh, In uh, in May we're going to be involved with the NYC by design event uh, which uh, which uh, supports the design community. Actually, we were talking a bit about preservation and uh, and uh, m- modern storefronts and looking about how landmarks has enhanced Madison Avenue as a, as a fashion district.
1: Wow! Um, just to jump in uh, the the Madison Avenue Gallery Walk is something that I have participated in for many years oh. uh, through my uh, work with the art world, and I uh, absolutely. Hardly endorse it. If anyone has a chance to attend this, it really is quite a um, spectacular evening out uh, and a chance to kind of see a lot of different spaces and amazing art that you wouldn't otherwise have a chance to see. So, yeah, no, a, a, absolutely an amazing annual event. Thank Real you. highlight, actually, on the Upper East Side, I think, of the art world. Thank you. Yeah. And,
5: and it's actually, you know, not only are you getting to see the art, you're actually meeting the curators uh at the galleries and i know a lot of folks actually sometimes feel uncomfortable about going into galleries they don't realize that they're free Mm -hmm. open to the public and this is a way of 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 building those relationships with the with that with the community Um, and at the same time as as you mentioned the uh you many of the galleries are located in, in former mansions and it's actually an opportunity to walk around and see the original staircases and the fireplaces. As a matter of fact, I just gave a tour uh, of the Aquavella Gallery on, uh, 80, on 79th Street. Yeah. There amazing is that wonderful, mm-hmm. that wonderful staircase and the fireplace. I mean, you really get a sense of the, the mansions that uh, were up and down uh, in, our, in our community.
0: And just to uh, let our listeners know, that's a mile and a half 30 blocks, 57th to 86th Street. When does this start on the 27th, and when does it end? What's uh, the time frame? Uh,
5: right? 10, 10, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., uh, and you could register at madisonavenuegallerywalk.com. So and it's a partnership with Art News Magazine, which uh, is uh, a publication that uh, focuses, obviously, on everything happening in the art world.
0: Do you have to register or
5: It's free and open to the public. If you'd like to register for the talks that take out today that happen throughout the day, you could you could just register online, but uh, you could also just you could just come.
0: And the address for that again is
5: uh, com. Great,
0: great. Well, um, since you lead a BID, have you ever had uh, a desire or a fantasy of opening up your own business in the neighborhood, Matt?
5: oh <laughs> i i could tell you it is a very very hard thing to do that you uh it is a um uh you definitely need to have the perseverance the uh, uh, the sense of uh involvement uh, with your client that uh i admire deeply um uh, yeah, a few times I've wanted to, to do it, uh, but uh, I, I feel like uh, I found my, my role in helping those who are making that commitment throughout the, throughout the year, and I'm very, uh, very honored to work for them.
0: Well, it was kind of a trick question. Obviously, you do have your own enterprise, which is you uh, lead the business improvement district. But, uh,
5: but we, we do respond to a board of directors, and actually all business improvement districts in New York City uh, have a board of directors including that uh, feature property owners, re- retailers, residents, and the mayor, the comptroller, the borough president, and our local council member.
0: Is there anything that you struggle with in the neighborhood?
5: Well I think it's always a perpetual uh effort to introduce businesses to new clients and to uh make sure that as many people uh not only in our community outside our community know about the neighborhood and know about the stores that are there so you know always that is the biggest uh the biggest effort and I think uh uh retailers share that uh, but um you know there is you know, a, a perpetual um, reinvention uh, that each brand uh, has in terms of how it, how it uh, uh, um, you know, their new collection comes out a few times a year. And every time that new collection comes out, it's a time for renewal and a time for re-outreach. And uh, so that is always a lot of fun. And, we you know, we have an event called Madison Avenue Watch Week, for example, that takes place every year. A month after Baselworld and uh, 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 and uh, the SIHH show in Geneva, and all these watches are brand new. All the things that are new out there in uh, uh, in fine timepieces, and every year it feels like it's 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 uh, back in spring training. It, you're you're uh, you're bringing out what's new, and uh, it's always exciting and fun.
0: Hmm. Well, we have a, a little bit less than a minute. I wanted to ask you one other question. Uh, Is there anything that you wish the neighborhood had but that doesn't and that maybe you are committed to or want to actually create a change in it
5: well uh, it is it does have a lot of everything Uh, we are working to even build more restaurants in the neighborhood i think that's something that we are uh, actively working with Uh, there are so many great ones that are here and uh, we're making an effort to reach out to more and to bring more of that experience to madison avenue i should tell you we're one of the few places that has sidewalk cafes in uh, the upper east side
0: oh wow Well, everyone, for those of you who don't know Carnegie Hill or have not been there lately, you really ought to visit it, especially in light of the warmer weather and of the uh, Madison Avenue Gallery Walk. Is that the correct name for it? It is. Oh, excellent. Okay. And that takes place on April 27th, 27th. Our second guest has been Matt Bauer, president of the Madison Avenue Business Improvement District. And that brings us to the end of this week's journey to Carnegie Hill. We've been speaking with Matt Bauer of the Madison Avenue Business Improvement District and David Griffin of Landmark Branding. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on the show's mailing lists, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, the same name. You can also follow me on Instagram at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Thomas Siaka. And we have one other sponsor, me. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead Real Estate. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer today is the amazing Sam Lebowitz. And our special consultant is David Griffin, who's in the studio tonight. And David is of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m., right here on Talk NYC, And at 9 p.m., for Beyond Potential Living Life Your Way with my friend, Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Thanks. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. <laughs>
5: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at Talking Alternative.
2: Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire.